difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here with Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps, and Tasha Robinson. With American movie theaters largely closed, we're continuing to focus on quarantainment, pairing films that you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. So we've spent six months now in quarantine with no end in sight. And if you're like me and you have kids, this crisis is an opportunity, or as Homer Simpson would call it, a crisitunity. My children aren't going to in-person school, and they aren't socializing much with friends either, so naturally they're looking to us, their parents, for knowledge and wisdom. And just as naturally as parents, we have an opportunity to fuck with them a little bit. So, any ideas? Scott, that's awful. Their lives have already been upended so much. And you want to use our one profanity on messing with your children? Yeah, I'm with Tasha. This is a tough time for them already. But have you considered a multi-level marketing scheme? There's so much room for growth there, especially in the health and wellness sector. What do you mean, like like Nexium? Uh, no, nah, it's not like Nexium <laughs> at all. It's very wholesome. And besides, you want to spend money on sashes. You just have to create a series of expensive classes around a vague self-help philosophy that you completely make up. Then you can get your kids to recruit their friends. Then those friends can recruit other friends. And, and I get to be the guru, right? I, I've always wanted to be a guru. G- guys, guys, you need to stop watching The Vow. Besides, no kids are going to want to watch you play volleyball at three in the morning. It's way past their bedtimes. <sighs> well, that's a good point. Maybe I'll just be a normal, supportive father. It's boring, but uh, there's a certain dignity to it. So, Tasha, what are we talking about this week? We're talking about parents running evil schemes that are better thought through than Keith's Nexium plan, but not by much. The new Miranda July movie, Kajillionaire, stars Deborah Winger and Richard Jenkins as very, very small-time thieves and con artists who have always treated their grown daughter, played by Evan Rachel Wood, more like a business partner than a precious child. When a relatively normal woman, played by Gina Rodriguez, turns the criminal trio into a quartet, it also upends the parent-child relationship. That dynamic reminded us of Yorgos Lanthimos's 2009 breakthrough film Dogtooth, in which parents use language, fear, and violence to keep their three young adult children from leaving their fenced-in country estate. As in Kajillionaire, the introduction of an outsider contaminates this sadistic experiment. So this week, we'll look at the allegorical black comedy of Dogtooth, and next week, we'll bring in Kajillionaire, which explores such isolation with a little more whimsy and sentimentality. Please join us. Ένα παιδί είναι έτοιμο να φύγει από το σπίτι του όταν. Πέσει ο δεξιό κοινόδοξο. Μόνο τότε ο οργανισμό είναι έτοιμο να αντιμετωπίσει όλου του κινδύνου που παραφυλάνε. Εύχομαι όταν κάνει παιδιά να πάρουν τα λάθο ερεθίσματα και να δημιουργήσουν το λάθο χαρακτήρα. Πραγματικά στο εύχομαι. So, one discovery that we've been making throughout our time in quarantine is that basically every movie seems to be about quarantine. But seriously, my next picture show friends, Dogtooth is a really disturbing quarantine movie. In a sense, Dogtooth is like a more malevolent version of The Truman Show. What happens when you create an environment that's entirely sealed off from the contaminants of the outside world? As Ed Harris's reality TV producer put it in that film, quote, we accept the reality of the world which we're presented, end quote. Dogtooth could be understood as an allegory about parenthood, about the ugliest imaginable manifestation of the influence adults wield over their children. After all, parents do have an instinct to imprint their values on their kids, and this film shows the result when those values are utterly demented. But Yorgos Lanthimos' film strikes me as a dark parable of isolationism and authoritarianism, about those repressive regimes where democracy dies in darkness. As an American in the year 2020, Nearly four years deep into an administration that's an organ for lies and conspiracy theories, you cannot help but feel like Dogtooth is talking to you. And that as those lies and conspiracy theories have taken permanent root, 
many of your fellow citizens are already living in a world where zombies are little flowers, a telephone is a salt shaker, and any show of rebellion is answered by violence. Such places already exist around the globe. What makes us think we're immune? As Lanthimos would prove in later films like The Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer, he has a talent for creating strange environments that operate by their own set of rules. The three unnamed young adult children, one son and two daughters, and Dogtooth, are confined to a country estate surrounded on all sides by greenery and a large wooden fence. Their parents, also unnamed, keep them from leaving the property by feeding them false information and warning them about the terror that lurks should they ever set foot outside the gate. They enforce these falsehoods in ways big and small, by inventing definitions for vocabulary words like zombies and telephones, for example, or through a made-up fourth sibling whose tragic demise is intended as a cautionary tale. When the son kills a stray cat in the backyard one afternoon, the father seizes the opportunity to declare cats to be the most deadly creature in the world, responsible for their missing sibling's death. But reality is a contagion that cannot be easily suppressed. When Christina, a security guard at the father's factory, is blindfolded and smuggled onto the compound to have sex with the son, her presence eventually contaminates the experiment. It starts with the son refusing to go down on her, which leads Christina to his eldest sister, who agrees to barter for it, first for a sparkly headband, then for a couple of VHS tapes of popular American movies. Once the elder sister surreptitiously pops those in the VCR, it's like pulling the loose thread on a sweater. The whole thing starts to unravel. Dogtooth is a semantical delight. Not only do we get the funny dislocation of words from their understood meaning, but the film itself challenges us to find a context for strange behaviors. Like what movies has the eldest daughter seen? Rocky Four for sure. She does a very good Jaws in the pool. And then she surprises her parents on their anniversary with some dance moves cribbed from Jennifer Beals. The comic absurdity of Dogtooth goes some distance in making the underlying sadism of this environment more palatable, if only just a little. The film is a warning about the dangers of not living in a free and open society. And in fall of the year 2020 in America, it chilled me to the bone. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Όσο βρίσκεστε μέσα, δεν κινδυνεύετε. Είστε προστατευμένοι. Παρ' όλα αυτά, πρέπει να είμαστε προετοιμασμένοι σε περίπτωση που ξαναεισβάλλει κάτι στο σπίτι ή στον κήπο. All right, so I know that three of us have had seen Dogtooth <laughs> in the past, and then one of us hasn't. So maybe we should talk to the one who hasn't seen it first before we talk about our various histories with this film. So Genevieve, what was your uh, impression of Dogtooth on first viewing? <laughs> well, I think I need to offer the context that you all have been hyping up for me how disturbing this movie is. And, and I, I was certainly aware of that reputation before we did this pairing. I actually posted something on Twitter of Scott and Keith's talking about how like you felt sorry that for me that I, that I was going to experience this movie. And now I'm thinking that may have actually like been a plan on your guys' part to like set my expectations so high as far as disturbing that the movie couldn't possibly meet them because you know what like I was fine. I was fine mm, watching right, this okay. movie. Like, like don't get me wrong, it was disturbing, but it wasn't distressing to me mm. in any way. And I think that there's a few reasons that could be I think one is, as you mentioned, Scott, like it is so allegorical, like these characters are really sort of pieces that move throughout the movie in service of sort of this 
bigger allegorical idea. Like they're not necessarily characters you form an emotional connection to. Like they're filmed with their heads chopped off a lot of the time, you know, and the the two daughters, I kept mixing them up, I think kind of on purpose. Like they're not very distinguished from each other. I would be curious about your guys' take on this because I think that there's sort of two stances you can watch this movie from that make it especially disturbing, one of them being as a parent and one of them being as a sibling because there is an incest uh, moment. And I am neither of those things. I am a child of parents, obviously. We, We all are, so we all bring that sort of stance to it. But while certainly understanding that incest is taboo, I don't have sort of the visceral reaction to it that, say, my fiance does, who who has siblings, you know. Um, so I think maybe I was able to disengage with that a little more. And then obviously, from a parental perspective, I can, again, recognize <laughs> this behavior as being abhorrent and unusual. But again, it's not something that I felt as strong a connection to that it made it uncomfortable to watch or, or that it made it exceptionally uncomfortable to watch. It's an uncomfortable movie in, in some ways, but even like the weird sort of mechanical sex scenes we get throughout the movie just didn't really bother me because they felt so in function of the story, not the characters who, again, all felt just a little flat to me in terms of like having an emotional center. I mean, it is very presentational. It is very theatrical in a way, as opposed to really felt on an emotional level. But at the same time, I just find that reaction really interesting because, you know, we've talked a lot about the fact that what you don't like in horror is that sense of anticipation and and suspense, Mm -hmm. like the buildup of tension. And one of the things that surprised me most about revisiting Dogtooth is that I still felt that sense of tension throughout. I think when you put characters on the screen that don't follow just basic fundamental rules of how we understand societies to work, families, siblings, parents, just like any of the fairly basic rules about things one does and things one does not do, they're not following. And as a result, there's very little sense of flow to the movie, I find. But there's also very little understanding of like what might come next. And I found the tension just oppressive in terms of how much more unpleasant is this going to be? Like what's going to happen next? I find myself really drawn into films where I don't have any idea what's coming next. And like every scene in this film feels mostly kind of disconnected from previous scenes. But at the same time, they all just kind of fundamentally come from a place of, I, I don't know what's going to happen here. I, I don't know where this story is going or how bad it's going to get, given some of the things that we see, some of the fairly disturbing and surprising things that come out of nowhere. I should also note that I did know where this movie ended, at least uh, not the very end, but I did know about the the dance at the very end because it was part of the uh, 50 best pop music moments uh, list that we did at the Dissolve, which was sort of my my first introduction to Dogtooth. That uh, scene was on there and I watched that scene in the course of editing that list. And so knowing that that came at the end and that it was building to that, I think maybe gave me sort of a subconscious sense of the the underlying structure of the film like that I, I still really like how this film ends with the maybe escape uh, which I, I did not know but I think just in terms of knowing that it didn't end with them all killing each other you know and in a massacre mm. kind of gave me a little like a sense of stability going through the film yeah I always uh, just as while we're talking about the dancing real quickly I always wanted someone I don't have the talent for this I'd always wanted someone to love for someone to mock up a still from that scene like a movie poster and put dog tooth in the flash dance font with the mm-hmm. tagline what a feeling <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I uh, I have uh, not, do not have the skills to do that so only child here but uh, I am a parent father specifically you know this is my first I've seen this twice now once was 10 years ago I think it came out in the US in, ten, in 2010 right yeah yeah so so 10 years between and, and in the, those time it became a father and i think i found it more disturbing uh just because you realize just how easy it is to mess a kid up you know i mean mm-hmm. it's yeah. a constant balancing act you you kind of consider like you know what you want versus how the how the child will you know what will not harm the child in accomplishing that you know it, it's just it's rough so these are bad parents uh that's my conclusion about these uh, this uh, <laughs> <laughs> this film these are not very good 
good parent at all. But no, I, I really enjoyed revisit. Well, enjoyed. <laughs> I was happy to revisit this. Uh, happy. Um, I'm glad I, re- <laughs> you, I definitely I was, revisited this film. It was enlightening to revisit this film, uh, oh, which, which I hadn't seen. I saw it with my wife, who's a relatively adventurous moviegoer, but has never quite forgiven me for... <laughs> Actually, she really hasn't quite forgiven you, Scott, because you told her what a funny movie this was. Did I? <laughs> and we went to see it at the Siskel Center here in Chicago. Uh-huh. And it was, yeah, was uh, kind of yeah. funny. You know, I laughed a few times. I laughed a few times, too. Wow. But I would say that was probably not uh, her primary take. More of a way homer. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but no, it's. It, I, I guess one thing I want to get into is I've honestly never seen this as primarily or even – I never really thought of it in allegorical terms. Honestly, I, hmm. I saw it as, as, as like, oh, wow. I just saw it as sort of an exploration of parenthood and some and some really uh, awful extremes of that. But, you know, we should talk about uh, both possible readings. Yeah, I, I certainly don't see it in the way Scott's describing hmm. as a political movie. Uh, it did not speak to me particularly about the events of 2020 and the, the state that we're in with our government. It, uh, that honestly... That particular form of uh, paternalism and uh, shading of the truth did not land for me. I was just thinking of it in terms of both an allegory for like religious and political and historical teachings. I mean, I guess one thing we could talk about right now is like the whole war over the California uh, 1619 project and just sort of the sense of what you teach kids as they grow up will determine kind of ways that they see the world. And there have always been local wars over class curriculums um, and what people learn in school and what they don't. But now we're seeing it kind of like on a national scale as, as a big wrestling match. And it does feel like it speaks to that kind of thing in a way. But this just really feels more to me like it's about where we learn norms, how we learn what other people are like and how to behave in a society by interacting with that society. Uh, and it feels very very Garden of Eden in a mm-hmm. twisted sort of way uh, to see these kids, question mark, to see these 20 somethings kind of roaming around this uh, like verdant field with no idea of how the world works. And so many just like demonstrably strange things taking completely at face value. Yeah, I definitely was kind of watching it from a Garden of Eden type place, at least in terms of of the allegory, and specifically sort of the introduction of human sexuality into a realm that has uh, attempted to to keep it cordoned off, specifically female sexuality, um, through the, the character of Christina, who is brought in for the brother for reasons that are sort of unclear. It doesn't really seem like there's a goal of procreation there so much as just like maybe more instruction of some sort. Well, it almost feels like they they felt like the son could not handle life without some kind of sexual release. Yeah. It's almost like, like Pon Far or something if you're right. from Star yeah. Trek. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. With the sort of express understanding that the, the two girls are not going to be in a similar situation. Right. right. But as soon as the eldest is sort of brought into into that situation through Christina, and who, who barters uh, her sparkly headband in exchange for, for licks, you know, like that's sort of the inciting incident as far as the, the wheels falling off of, of this experiment, you know? and which eventually leads her out of this Garden of Eden. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie, and I don't want to suggest that it is like something like Lord of the Flies that we discussed a few episodes back, where it's like this one very strong allegory for one specific thing. It's more like sort of a collection of ideas and things that these characters and the situation can represent. And I think because there is so much is uh, of that in here is why I was able to watch it from sort of a maybe more disconnected place, because I was very fixated on like sort of figuring out just from like an English major level how this all works together and what this means and and what, you know, this trajectory is telling us. Okay, so we've addressed how this movie feels as a sibling, how it feels as a parent, and how it feels as an English major. But there's there's a huge theme throughout this movie of dog ownership and training. And everybody everybody on this call except for me is a dog owner. You know, there is there's the whole idea of just shipping your dog off for an unknown amount of time so somebody else can train it in a specific way. Which is a thing. That is very much a thing that people do. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I mean, it... <laughs> 
it's 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 interesting how all of that plays out because we're kind of led to believe that he's got an attack dog that's being trained to defend the house and everything we see about the environment the cloistered environment and the walls that he's keeping his children in do make it seem like this might be the kind of household that would have a, a trained a vicious trained attack dog and then we see the actual dog and it's you know, Rex. just a, a sweet, ordinary little little pup that doesn't come when he calls. That, that got a laugh out of me. Uh, I, I admit that I, I did laugh at that. But I'm curious, like, given that given the emphasis on uh, training human beings to get down on all fours and bark like dogs, given the emphasis on human beings being trained to hate and fear cats, given the emphasis on what a person's personality is like comes from how you train them like a dog. How did you guys relate to this as dog lovers? <laughs> I mean, I was just glad a, a dog didn't get killed, <laughs> you know. But again, I think I related to it in as much as it is symbolic of of something else, as you say, sort of the father's desire to train and control everything that he owns and you know the idea that you can ship this dog off and it goes through seven stages of training and then comes out exactly how you want it and his frustration that that isn't happening you know as efficiently as he expected it to speaks to his belief that dogs and children alike should be easily molded into whatever you want them to be i do agree that i think there is sort of like a misdirect as far as the attack dog thing and in us thinking that he is, you know, wanting it as a defense mechanism. But I do think it is just sort of a, a misdirect. And it is in the end more about that him exercising that sense of control and the overlap between the dog and the children right down to your mother is having a, to a boy, a girl and a dog <laughs> in, a, in a couple of weeks, uh, unless you're really good. And then maybe she won't. But the dog <laughs> is definitely coming, which is another uh, point where I laughed. Yeah, no, it's a it's funny, right? Um, <laughs> the dog thing is a it's a that's a funny joke. I mean, and, and Keith and I, as the parents of terribly undisciplined animals, can <laughs> uh, can relate. My pug was so poor at dog training that we didn't even show up for the uh, graduation <laughs> ceremony. Like it was a two, it was a fraud. It was a fraud that that dog of ours would get a degree for training. Um, in any case, God, there's so much to respond to because I'm not sure where to start. One thing I am, I am surprised Genevieve that you got through it. And I'm thinking maybe, maybe you got thick skin now. I have gotten a lot better over the yeah. course of the almost five years we've, we've been doing this podcast. There has been a lot lately where you're like, oh, this is like, I mean, you could say you've been like, oh, this is kind of a drag, but it was, there haven't been like, like, this just shocked me to the core. Because, I mean, this, you know, I mean, what shocks me with this film is the violence is so startling. The the abuse, you know, the hitting with a VHS tape and hitting somebody else with a VCR and, you know, knocking your teeth out with a <laughs> with a small weight. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty visceral uh, movie. But, um, and, I'm, and I'm interested, I am intrigued to hear everyone's kind of interpretation of the film as allegory. Because I think it has the flexibility to accommodate a lot of different readings, which is kind of one of the exciting aspects of it. Because you can approach mm -hmm. it as a story about parenthood or an experiment in parenthood or homeschooling or however you want. You know, uh, you can think about it that way. And then you can think about it as, as, as I thought about it, especially now, is more of a political film and a story about what happens when the people in charge can wall off citizens from the truth and manipulate them and what a dangerous and scary place uh, that is so the film is very flexible in terms of whatever readings you kind of want to bring to it yeah i just happened to be rereading the handmaid's tale before watching this film and to me something they share in common is this idea is that you can't wall things off so things going to you know things worm through life finds a way i guess that there, <laughs> there is sort of that element to it too that where you, things will will slip through the barriers and that can be as evidence in this film just as destructive in its own way as as the repression when things well, get disrupted yeah 
I'm not pro repression, uh, but, but in the sense that there is at least, you know, no one's knocking their teeth out before the VHS tapes uh, work their way into the house. No one's, well, I guess they are murdering cats, but you know, things, things aren't going, things aren't going as well as they could, but there is a, a kind of awful balance to it before um, that, you know, I, I feel like the Hollywood movies that slip through uh, the, the daughter just does not know how to handle them. There's just no processing it. And it kind of dro- uh, knocks her off balance in a way that creates chaos as much as, uh, as anything else. Maybe this is the point where we bring in the ending and the sort of question it leaves hanging as far as the eldest survival and, and her escape, you know, because it's easy enough to kind of interpret as a moment of triumph, if that's what you want. But I think what we get before in terms of her, as you say, Keith, not being able to really handle the input she's getting from these movies and the break she has where she she knocks out her own, own tooth, it indicates that this is is maybe not a simple matter of escaping an oppressive system and maybe the damage has already been done and as such we don't get the trunk of the car opening and her stepping out we just get the trunk of the car and we're left wondering if she's alive in there do you guys have have a strong reading one way or the other as far as that goes i don't i feel like it's the handmaid's tale is another apt comparison here where Mm -hmm. you're you just don't have you don't have the information process to you know decide one way or the other uh, yeah. Yeah, I I was very disappointed with that ending the first time I saw the movie uh, because I just so desperately wanted her to escape. But this time around it read like the ending to Inception. I find myself just watching the trunk really really closely <laughs> to see if there was like any subtle hint that yeah. people would later potentially interpret as like definitely having seen like the handle was turning or definitely having having seen it started to open or something like I that. I turned it way up to see if there was like a creak. Maybe, yeah. or, you know, <laughs> a creak, a breath, like a knocking, like any, any sign yeah. of life from within. Tasha, can you explore this in a breathless 10 minute YouTube video? Uh, <laughs> ending the dog tooth explained. Well, I mean, the, you know, uh, a point that you would bring into that, I suppose, is the fact that there is a lot of stuff with like breath play and mm. testing the limits of consciousness and, and, and maintaining consciousness in this movie, you know? So, um, and I, with the blindfold thing, you know, there's definitely sort of these moments that in hindsight feel like set up for the experience of being in the locked in the trunk of a car all night, you know, and not knowing where you're headed to. Yeah, it wouldn't have occurred to me uh, that she might have suffocated in there because it seems like a nothing ending. It did sort of occur to me, given the abuse she's subjected herself to, that she might have passed out and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she might end up back at home still in the trunk of the car uh, because she's she's unconscious because of, of the pain and the blood. We're given just that moment, that lady or the tiger cusp of something possibly changing moment without any indication of where it's going to go. And I, I think we're invited to make our own choices. I mean, it's a fun thought experiment, I think. And I, I like a movie that can end that way, end on that note of ambiguity, because you also think like, okay, what what if she does pop the trunk and find her way out? I mean, what is that? How is she going to make her way into the world? She doesn't even, she doesn't know it. The most, she, all she knows is her, you know, what she's seen in Rocky Four and in Jaws and Flashdance and the experiences she's had at home, which are, you know, completely um, upend the reality as the rest of us on the outside know it but there is also a thought too that she does obviously have an impulse to set herself free at that moment you know i mean she wouldn't knock those teeth out and hide it in the trunk if she didn't um and so there's an there's a certain level of optimism there too you know i mean obviously anytime you're going to rebel against a repressive you know regime or it's going to get chaotic and, and ugly and and violent but i also think there's a little bit of hope there too i mean that's what rebellion's all about I mean, what if it's ultimately like uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane and it turns out that her captors were right all along and now she's got to fight <laughs> aliens? <laughs> See, now that that reading I... <laughs> That that reading I didn't consider, Tasha. Really, you didn't you didn't see that? It just seemed to me like the most obvious thing, uh, some symbol symbologically speaking. <laughs> She's doomed to have banal conversations with her dad's coworker 
for the rest of her life. I think <laughs> another thing that sort of struck me just sort of on a semantic level watching this film is how much of the conversation or how much of the dialogue is sort of banalities, you know, like there's not a lot of specifics in terms of of either like the world around these characters, the smaller world or the bigger world, or, you know, their emotions, their thoughts. It's all very like, could you pick up some chocolate on the way home if you happen to pass by the store? Or can you pass me the telephone that is actually a salt shaker? Like their communication style feels very purposefully blank (laughs) and then punctuated by these outbursts, you know, often, often violent outbursts. One of the things about the violent outbursts is that it, it just, I, I do have a, a sibling, a younger sister. And when we were very young, we fought physically. She remains possibly the only human being I've ever hit in anger. And it's because when you're young, you have these emotions and you don't have any like civilizing rules that say you like exactly how you, you deal with them. And it, that starts with kids really young. You have to teach kids not to hit each other. One of the big things that I saw in this movie is just adults who behave in many ways like children, but scaled up, you know, and on a operating on a more sophisticated level. So, when you have an anger against your sibling that you don't know how to express, you hit them with a hammer and then lie about it, you know, <laughs> where where it might otherwise just be a tripping them and then lying when they start crying. Like one of the one of the girls actually slips into her brother's bedroom and wangs him with a hammer and then claims that a cat did it. <laughs> And uh, slashes him with a knife and slashes him with a knife yeah that's a, a particularly shocking moment yeah but something about their behavior uh, uh, specifically about the way the characters hold themselves and act the fact that they're not uh hugely and outsizedly emotional with all of these things they're just enacting pretty standard sibling rivalry having never uh, like seen other interactions between people of the same age well, and it's a rivalry that's stoked by their parents with the, you know, these, uh, the stickers, you know, mm. um, I noticed the stickers on his headboard immediately, uh, like in the first scene where they were showing, I was like, that's going to be important. And I was right. <laughs> um, but in like with the airplane falling from the sky, another <laughs> sort of like dark comedy moment was the the mother throwing the toy airplane and the dad telling them it had fallen and, and, and going to get it. Again, the the scene of them all blindfolded and kind of fumbling toward the mom, like the the parents put them in a position of rivalry constantly, and when it erupts into violence, as as Tasha was saying, is sort of natural for it to do when you don't have a civilizing force, and these parents are not a civilizing force. They also enact violence against their children. Yeah, it's it's natural that you would have these like explosive moments. I think. So I'm curious to ask, like, what do we think of the parents? Uh, I mean, what's their agenda here? Why are they doing this? Yeah, I don't think we know. <laughs> no, that's kind of the. I, I I don't have. Any... I think we've got the broad, the macro uh, idea pretty clearly from what the father says to Christina after he beats her with the VCR. Like he mm. he curses her to have children that are exposed to bad influences and end up with bad personalities. Uh, this is clearly something he's obsessed with. You know, he's obsessed with it in the dog. He's obsessed with uh, them getting the wrong ideas about things or like going out, having any exposure to the outside. But as to like individual decisions, there's just a lot of questions. I mean, one can maybe see why he pulls the whole business with the cat killed your brother because there's a an element of the fiction that they've created around the family that he and his wife have decided they need to be done with. Like this is it's starting to cause problems like let's change the story. But like what possible you can even see what the purpose is in telling them the word telephone means assault shaker. So it'll never occur to them that there's a device that they could use to communicate with other people outside their uh, their area. But like, what possible purpose is convincing them that C is a kind of chair, or that uh, genitals are the word for genitals is keyboard? Like what, 
what agenda are like all of these little macro things pursuing? Well, that, that's just a, that's just a parenting thing, Tasha. <laughs> you you, you, you want <laughs> again? You do want to kind of mess with your kids' heads sometimes. That uh, so this is a, this is an elevated. This is that in an elevated form. I don't know. I will say the the word definition thing, you know, the film opens with it with them them listening to the tape of of the mother giving giving them these definitions. Is it always the mother who gives them the the word definitions that we see? I think it is. I think so. Yeah. There's an, another thing to ponder. You know, and it's it's like it's a very grabby thing, of course. Like it's it's a, a very efficient way to illustrate that like there's something very off in this world right from the jump. That said, I don't know how I feel about its execution throughout the rest of the movie, because if theoretically they are listening to these tapes every day, or it seems like something they they do regularly, like they're getting fed a lot of incorrect vocabulary. But then we also see one of the sisters reading an anatomy book, you know, and the, the so like they do have some linguistic input coming from from other places. And then the instances where we see the, you know, them actually use these words incorrectly are kind of few and far between to the point where it it seems like there should be more. It seems, you know, there's only like maybe four or five instances we see of, of these words being used incorrectly and it just seems like if that is such a big part of their daily education that there would be more and the language would be even more twisted yeah i get what you're saying but yeah i think it's the attempt there is just is to show that they're, they're trying to really fundamentally rewrite reality at the most basic level which is our, our, our words you know it's illustrative but but to kind of like go back to the question of like how disturbing this movie is i think i would find it more disturbing if the language was more twisted than it actually is it feels used as punctuation that often comedic punctuation rather than woven into the reality of this cloistered universe your thing with the mother always recording the tapes it brings it raises a question to me is is how complicit is the mother in this because she seems to be fully complicit but she also seems to she, she never, never leaves she never leaves so yeah. so it may yeah. just be that she's just kind of been been resigned herself to the father's schemes here as well but in terms of motivation it almost seems like in some ways not that they take any joy in it but it almost seems like an elaborate prank like a, <laughs> a, a, a lifelong prank they're playing on their children like especially when they the thing with the your mother's going to give birth to a dog uh the the absent uh, brother these all seem like you know you know jokes have gone on horribly too long and gone horribly awry or a perversion of a writerly impulse of, of writing characters mm. and writing plot you know i think you could that's another sort of allegorical reading you could bring here I feel like it's all too matter of fact, though. I, I feel like if we were kind of pursuing an agenda of uh, the parents as some kind of merry pranksters who are enjoying this in any way, we would see them dropping the facade at some point. We we see them alone together and a couple of different ways they have of communicating so the children can't listen in, can't be aware of what's going on. And we never see them drop that seriousness. It honestly seems like raising these kids and creating this environment is the most important thing in their lives, the thing that they take most seriously, the thing that they've put the most thought into. So I don't know, I, I think back to some friends of mine who I hadn't seen in a while, and they, they came and visited Chicago with their kids. And we we went to Chinatown for dinner. And the kids were very excited and the parents were busily telling them when I showed up that this was the last day of Chinatown, that Chinatown was planning on closing forever uh, the next day. <laughs> so it was very important that we all have dinner like here because it was going to be our last chance. And you could see the kids not 100% buying it, but not knowing where the trick was. And then we got seats in a restaurant and uh, the kids were like, uh, you know, can can we each order something? And they said, you know, no, we only have enough money for uh, three of us to eat. Um, so we're going to draw lots and see who doesn't get to eat. And now you can tell that part of that was teaching their kids a certain amount of skepticism. And part of it was just messing with them. Mm -hmm. uh, you could also tell that the kids who were like fairly young at the time had already learned to not necessarily take everything their parents said seriously. Uh, there wasn't a lot of backtalk or disagreement, but there was kind of a, 
all right, they're saying this, let's, rather than freaking out, because that doesn't work, let's see how it actually pans out. But, you know, I could see that my friends were enjoying this process. I never get the sense that the mother and father here are delighting in the things that they teach their kids. I, I really think that they're just on some fundamental level, really twisted people mm -hmm. who think that they're doing the absolute right thing, which honestly is an, an awful lot of parents, maybe not the twisted part, but the conviction that the way they're raising their kids is the right way to raise kids and that everybody else is doing it wrong. That's really, really common. I mean, I mean I think everybody thinks that. I mean, everyone thinks they're doing it right, I think. I mean, why would you make decisions? Why would you make decisions as a parent that you don't feel are right or in part I mean, I think a lot of people have a lot of questions that they have to navigate. Like, is this the right way to go about well, things? Well, that's thoughtful um, and, and, and good. It's funny. Your story reminded me so much of our, our friend, Stephen Thompson, uh, currently uh, a pop culture happy hour <laughs> co-host, uh, telling his kids that, that they uh, did not get the channel that Barney uh, was on. <laughs> <laughs> so you can do it. You can pull it off. It's, it's, uh, uh, you know, so in that sense, this is a, again, much more malevolent version of uh, something that parents kind of commonly do, which is, uh, you know, create a kind of reality for our kids and, and and you know and again every movie is quarantainment as i as every movie's about quarantine now so so uh I, I felt that a little bit too about like all this time in, in isolation with us i mean that increases our influence it has to you know because who else are they going to turn to for input um not their friends and or anybody else and so it's us one thing that just really struck me differently watching this film in 2020 had nothing to do with present politics specifically. It had more to do with present culture. I found it very hard to rewatch this film without thinking of Parasite. You know, mm -hmm. you've oh, got 100%. this huge, <laughs> yep. gorgeous house uh, yeah. with a bunch of very rich people who have created a little cloistered environment for themselves and are feeding their kids some very specific knowledge about kind of like what what their place in the world is and what they're good for what they can get away with mm -hmm. and you can see that the the kids both kind of have their own version of of a twisted upbringing and it's it's funny to me that all of this is disrupted by basically the low-level scam family from kajillionaire mm -hmm. coming in and insinuating themselves into the house it's it's like the double feature that we programmed you could just see as a single <laughs> movie if you watch uh, parasite I feel like Dogtooth may have come up as a as a parasite uh, pairing idea. I could be wrong there, but I've, I've, it's it's definitely come up as an idea before, so it, it made sense that it would be there. Well, watching again, also, I, I now see uh, that the sort of uh, uh, midnight movie junk version of this is a human centipede in a way. <laughs> I, I can't speak yeah, to that, but uh, I'll take your word for it. Feed Definitely him. someone who wants to feed him. <laughs> well, it's the open lawn. Uh, someone who wants to exert total control. Uh, the over, open over lawn. People. Yes, this, that is no, where it's, it's, that is where the uh, experiment is yeah, taking play. Take starts in the when uh, they all line up. It's uh, medically accurate, hundred percent, right? So what do we pair with the human centipede? Let me think about that. All right, carry on. <laughs> okay. Well, I, red wine. We probably lots, <laughs> lots of red wine. I, I think was once once we've hit the human centipede, I think that's like probably <laughs> the end of the discussion. Um, so we reached the human centipede. We line. have. We have. I mean, b before we shut this down or spend twenty minutes on the human centipede, I I do kind of want to circle back to d the sexuality of this movie because it does seem like there's a m weird mechanical innocence to the sex that happens in this movie and it's so disturbing it's so unpleasant first of all watching sex without any form of passion or consideration for each other or even necessarily pleasure on either participant's part is just pulling sexuality like so far out of how we're used to thinking of it and how we're used to seeing it in movies that it becomes this very derived unpleasant bodily function uh, but then I think that the idea that the film flirts with that people see male sexuality as something that has to be satisfied and female sexuality as much less existent or important. Uh, and then the film undermines that, you know, with with Christina very clearly deciding that she's not getting the sex like the pleasure out of this transactional process that she wants or deserves effectively like making a mechanical bargain with somebody else like masturbation is a thing there are there are other ways 
to get your rocks off than paying a creepy human adult child uh, for sexual I, I announce fail me for sexual contact, I suppose. And the fact that it goes on over time, like the fact that it's a repeated act, like she's clearly getting something out of it. Uh, but it, well, she's it getting kind of paid. <laughs> well, she's getting paid to to sexually service the boy, but she's not getting paid to, you know, receive oral sex from the, the eldest daughter. That's something that she craves and wants for herself. And it's also a case of her imitating the father. I think it's another, like, uh, mm-hmm. a case of her exerting power over another over another person as he is exerting power over her and, and so, uh, in exchange for money in her case and, and you know, headbands, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, as as far as like Christina and and the daughter go, like that doesn't strike me as something that is rooted in a desire for pleasure. It uh, strikes me as being about a reclamation of power on Christina's part, because I I don't think I I can't remember exactly like if the camera cuts away, but uh, I I don't think we are given any indication that there is any sort of, you know, climax or satisfaction reached by, by either party in that transaction. And it's just sort of extrapolating the transactional nature of Christina's interactions with the brother to, as Keith said, kind of like her taking on the role of a father there. Well, and it also translates right to, you know, it's like it passes along too, because then because then the eldest sister has the other right. sister, you know, lick her shoulder, I think, you know, and it, so, so. That, and then some other places. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, there's kind of, but I think there's like a power is the main thing here, I, I think. I think we'll also have opportunity to talk about uh, sexuality in in relation to Kajillionaire, which uses it in a a very different way, a point of contrast, maybe. But, uh, you know, we will have more opportunity to talk about awkward Greek sex. We we, we will. (laughs) So uh, so but but for now, we'll we'll put a pin in that and uh, we'll be right back with feedback. it's time for feedback where our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film earlier this summer keith and i recorded a bonus episode that tasha hosted where we talked about how we're introducing our kids to movies speaking in a very dog toothy kind of way trying to influence (laughs) the things that they see so a, a listener who's into not just a listener a patreon subscriber who's into horror films weighed in keith do you want to read this one for us Sure. Kevin writes, Thank you for the recent bonus episode discussion around sharing movies with your kids. My son is almost three and a half, so we haven't been watching too many movies yet, but he's definitely starting to follow longer stories and more complex ideas beyond the favorite shows, so I really appreciated the discussion. Sometimes what kids lock in with seems random, and you realize they're just figuring it out as they go, like all of us, I guess. What Scott and Keith said about knowing your kids and what they can and can't handle makes so much sense, and thankfully for me as a horror fan, he seems to like being scared sometimes. A few months ago, I gave him a posable Godzilla toy that I had when I was a kid. I think it was a promotional toy for the Godzilla 1985 film, and he loves it. So one day he wanted to, quote, watch a Godzilla movie, unquote. I didn't think he'd sit through the black and white original, so he watched the much more colorful and kid-friendly Son of Godzilla, featuring a clumsy baby Godzilla that falls down a lot, makes faces, and gets chased by giant bugs. We have somehow watched this movie in its entirety at least three times. You never know where their interests are going to take them, and sometimes they might turn you onto something new that surprises you. It's a journey I'm looking forward to taking with him as much or as little as he wants. Thanks as always for the show and the work, and I'm glad you're all hanging in there as best you can. Here's to a better 2021 and more great movies. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, we kind of. I had, love this email. Yeah. I'm glad we brought it up again. I answered it a little bit, you know, by myself on, on the Patreon newsletter, which you can get as a Patreon subscriber. Mm-hmm. But what does everyone else think about uh, this letter? I think it's really sweet. And I also want to know if uh, Keith, as a somewhat Godzilla completist, if you've seen Son of Godzilla. <laughs> uh, I'm only completist up through the classic ones. But yes, I have seen and enjoyed this movie. And it's uh, I would recommend it. It's a very odd movie that's mostly about a young latchkey kid kind of fantasizing about going to hang out with Godzilla. The, the monster stuff is really fun, but it also kind of works as a nice little portrait of what it was like to be a uh, kid with uh, with working parents in, in Japan in the early uh, 1970s. Or actually 1967, now that I look at it. Uh, so late 60s. 
And the thing that this letter reminded me of, too, is that three and a half is an interesting age because kids are much more willing to accept abstraction than they become a little bit later on. In a way, they're more adventurous at three and a half than they are, you know, even just a few years later, even though you'd think as they got older, they get more adventurous. That's not true. I think it's kind of the other way around. And then maybe later down the line, they start to explore more. But, you know, as I've said, I think before, my neighbor Totoro was my eldest daughter's favorite movie at that age. I mean, she, you know, it's because she just accepted what the film was doing and, and kind of went with the flow in a way that, you know, a kid sort of more weaned on the movies of the day might find it, you know, resist, might resist it, might find it foreign and difficult and hard to get into. So uh, I like it. Start them young. I mean, I'm personally interested about like what this uh, letter is saying in terms of horror fans uh, mm-hmm. passing that down to their their kids or not, because I'll, I'll just say my mom dislikes horror maybe even more than I uh, do or, or did. As, as, as discussed, I'm, I may be getting a little better, but it, it's not something I was raised watching. I, I didn't have an older sibling, you know, showing them to me. I didn't have a parent showing them to me. So, you know, the, the omissions of parental viewing, I think, can also kind of shake yeah, that's, your kids' yeah. future that's tastes. Been very cautious about. I mean, because I have had, I think the, my youngest wanted to see you know, Goosebumps, right? The Jack Black thing. Is that mm-hmm. what it is? Goosebumps. And we saw it together and and she was like, she could not get to sleep. She was so freaked out by it, you know, even though it's a pretty mild movie. By arachnophobia was that movie for me. Oh, scarred, arachnophobia. Scarred me for, to, to yeah, this day. yeah, so it's like, uh, you know, and I, and, I, and I, my parents, I was probably closer to 10 11 years old but uh, plopped us in front of the tv edit of the, the exorcist <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that completely screwed my sister up big time so i don't know i mean it, it's tough and i and i'm kind of cautious about that genre but i think as we said in the bonus episode and as kevin is saying here you just go by feel and you kind of get a sense of what your kids can handle and can handle and um you know everything is it's a journey it's a marathon not a sprint so uh you, you don't have to rush to you know make them watch halloween or nightmare on elm street they, they'll get there you just have to kind of like have them watch the things that, that they're going to enjoy that are, and that are appropriate to them based on who they are at a particular juncture in time yeah i love horror uh my wife doesn't and nothing more uh i'd love to create a kid who would watch horror movies with me eventually uh but uh i'm not actively trying to create one dog tooth style so uh, <laughs> uh if it happens great if not you know uh, you know people go to bed i can watch watch stuff on my own okay so on the, uh, for this show we have a lot of back and forth in our planning meetings about pairings and uh one listener was interested in whether we had any regrets uh genevieve who is this person Uh, This person is Patrick, who writes, Because I listen to your podcast out of order, don't worry, it's always in pairs, I was struck with the thought that the assistant could have paired well with Gaslight. Are there any other pairings you'd change or rearrange if you could time travel back through your catalog? Just to note, for those of you who also might be be listening out of order, we uh, had, uh, by the time we did uh, The Assistant and Working Girl, we had just very recently paired Gaslight with the new The Invisible Man, which is why we couldn't pair it with the assistant. Although I don't know if we would have done that pairing. We might have. I think it works. It would work fine with that, but I think it actually works pretty well with the invisible man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the, the, first one that came to mind for me with this letter is a, a very recent one, which is the the new Mulan movie, the live action Mulan movie that would be a, a pretty interesting pairing, I think, unlike a lot of Disney live action movies would be an interesting pairing with its animated uh, counterpart. But we had already paired that with Moana several years ago at, at, oh, at wow. this point. I mean, and I think that was actually a very good pairing. And as it turns out, we uh, were able to talk about Mulan as a, a bonus episode for uh, Patreon, which is actually available to everyone in our, in our main feed now. So, you know, it worked out fine. But there's definitely been some other other ones recently. Does anyone have one? I argued pretty strenuously that we shouldn't pair Boys State with Lord of the Flies, Mm. because uh, to my mind, a lot of what was interesting about Boys State was the fact that it didn't break down into a Lord of the Flies situation, that what the movie shows us is some very disciplined and uh, thoughtful young men 
creating a political system. And uh, to my mind, like Lord of the Flies was maybe a little too knee jerk a response. I feel like we got a lot of really good stuff out of that, uh, that pairing. And it ended up being appropriate when we focused uh, primarily on how the sort of the government was created. But we had talked uh, previously about the possibility of pairing it with a different political doc, a different how the, the war room, get made. the war room well, specifically yeah. came up. Yeah, well, that's that's where I was going. Yeah. We yeah. talked about we talked about pairing it with either the war room or feed. And if I remember correctly, feed is not very widely available. And we mm. paired the war room with Wiener back in uh, 2017, I believe. I mean, that theoretically could one. have been one yeah. that's uh, that we did differently. But We've talked before. We've we've had a lot of curiosity about like how we pick pairings and roads not traveled, and we've we've brought up this question before. And I think ultimately, while we might have examples of like, oh, here's here's another interesting possibility that we didn't take that road. Most of these are cases where we've we've talked it to death in terms of what are all of the options, what's the best option, what do you like, what are you willing to rewatch at this point in your life. So I, I suspect that there aren't going to be nearly as many. Uh, oh, how did we not think of that uh, kind of pairings as you think? Well, and there's also the fact that like this podcast is getting we've been doing this for a while now. We've we've done almost 250 films uh, at, at this point. Oh, wow. Yeah, do, yeah. Do we actually, do all the good ones I think, already? Actually, no. Um, I, 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 <laughs> yes, I, I, we're I, done with cinema. We've, we've <laughs> used it up. I think by this time this comes out, we actually may have have surpassed uh, 250. Um, but so you know, something that we come up against a little more these days that we didn't in the in the earlier days is like something like Mulan, a film that we've already done that would make a very obvious pairing. And you know, sometimes that's disappointing, but I think it also kind of forces us into more, you know, sort of creative direction. Sometimes uh, uh, one that I thought of from kind of recently was when *The Five Bloods came out, sort of the the obvious impulse there was to pair it with another Spike Lee joint. But we had just a year or so earlier already done a double Spike Lee feature with Black Klansman and Malcolm X. Not that Malcolm X would have necessarily been a great pairing with *The Five Bloods, but we had already done a Spike Lee twofer and spoiler alert, I, I think we might be doing another one in the, yeah. some, in the, in the near future. But because of that, because it's like, okay, well, this we don't want to go back to this well again. Let's, you know, and, and it happily to Five Bloods is a film that offers a lot of cinematic touch points beyond Spike Lee himself. So we landed on Treasure of the Sierra Madre there. But, you know, if we hadn't already done a fair amount of Spike Lee films, uh, that may not have been the case. And that kind of happens with other frequently covered directors. I'm thinking of maybe Scorsese. Well, for instance, we couldn't do Taxi Driver with Joker because we'd already done Taxi Driver in comparison with First Reformed a while back. Mm -hmm. So whereas like that was a very clear influence and there were some very visible and obvious Mm -hmm. connections up to the point of a lot of people saying that Joker was just a straight up Taxi Driver ripoff, Mm -hmm. we had already gone to that well. And we've we've never done the like, let's just discuss this movie again because it's, it's such a good pairing. I don't think we ever will. We also didn't do King of Comedy and that wasn't because we'd already done it. I think it was just like we were kind of approaching Scorsese overload at that that mm. point. I mean, yeah. ta- Taxi Driver, we could just like put with so many. I mean, so many movies now are are inspired by Taxi Driver uh, that you could kind of attach it to uh, to a lot of titles. I mean, the the, the one that the one, that, of course, the, I can mention a future regret, which is that if we're talking about Spike Lee. It seems likely that we're going to do an episode on American Utopia, the David Byrne show that Spike Lee, you know, filmed, but we've already done Stop Making Sense, uh, which would have been the obvious thing to pay, to do kind of a David Byrne pairing. We did Stop Making Sense with the Justin Timberlake doc that Jonathan Demme also directed. No regrets there. That was yeah. extremely fun. Uh, if I recall, that was a super fun episode. Yeah, I like that. But, um, but it would be nice to focus on David Byrne. No, and, well, not to pull um, us off the double Spike Lee idea, but we could do true stories. You're hearing oh. planning being done on the podcast itself. How yeah, thrilling. That's interesting. But I oh, want to talk stories. about the other movie. Yeah, that's a strange script, too. Uh, would be interesting. I would, strange, yeah. I would say that my uh, favorite episodes are the ones where we start with something that looks like it has a pretty strong connection. And then deeper into it, we find more and more connections. I'm thinking like the piano, Portrait of Lady on Fire, and Defy mm-hmm. Bloods, and and uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Those those are those are some good some good ones. I, my least favorite ones 
not that we don't always do a great job, but like when when, the, <laughs> when when half the pairing's kind of a dud, like it's okay. I think it's okay to do bad movies, particularly when they're bad, in interesting ways. Like I thought our Godzilla King of the Monsters one that was kind of interesting to watch that one. But like I'm thinking about Men in Black International, which is which is not a movie. <laughs> yeah, so we did that. We did that one. Did I we, know. Yeah. I know. I, yeah. Exactly. How do, we talk, we? how do we talk about that film for for more than five minutes? Yeah. I mean, I think we mostly talked about the original, which you know is oh is a much gosh. better film. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. regrets. But, we have had a few. Um, <laughs> so we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response in a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll examine the influence of another set of demented parents in Miranda July's Kajillionaire. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we encourage you to sit in a comfortable sea and watch a good movie.